again. I'm going to ask George, if you would not mind uh, praying for the reading and the teaching from God's Word. So, George, if you would please. As I was thinking about uh, this time of year, I was uh, preparing what to preach. One of the things that I was struck by uh, is the fact of how different uh, this time of Christmas that is celebrated is for different people. There's some areas that stuck out to me is one, for some it's a time of family celebration. I've heard of all the Paylinis coming from all the corners of this country uh, to spend time with family. But yet for some, uh, it is not a time of family. As a matter of fact, it's a time in which people are depressed. And the statistics that I saw was, this was in 2021, 55% of, the, of Americans experienced the holiday blues. So I was struck by that. For some, it's a time of celebration. Some it's a time of depression. Also, we see for some, especially uh, younger, and uh, was not the case in our house, but for many, uh, it's a time of receiving gifts from a, and this is a MacArthur uh, termed character or description, a mythical, jolly, calorically challenged old fellow. For others, it's a time of giving. It's a time of spending, unfortunately, to the point where they spend too much. The one statistic that stood out to me uh, was that the survey in 2022 is uh, the person expected to spend $932 per person on Christmas. And if you had a poor family, that would put us into bankruptcy. You see, for some, it's a time of receiving gifts, and for some, time of giving or a time of spending. Interestingly, as I was looking at this, I found two that I thought were the most crazy gifts. Uh, one is uh, somebody spent $1.5 million for a red Tibetan Mastiff dog. $1.5 million. Someone else, uh, someone that you would know, uh, and that is Mike Tyson. So I might tell you a little bit here. <laughs> uh, spent $2.3 million for a 24 karat solid gold bathtub as a Christmas present. 
So, you know, ultimately, these people were looking for what they thought were the perfect gift. But we know that the Bible says there's only one gift uh, that is perfect. There's one gift that is indescribable, that is unspeakable. Another translation says that it's too wonderful for words. That is the gift of Jesus Christ. Another comparison that I don't have on the screen, but my kids brought it up to me and I thought was interesting and sad, uh, is during Christmas time, uh, you will find, this is the good side, I guess, secular radio stations playing hymns, playing Mark the Herald, the joy to the world. And the part that is sad is if you turn on K-Love or one of the Christian radio stations, you will hear them playing secular. It's White Christmas, or as we heard in our car coming here on Halo, check the halls. So you see this compare and contrast. And then finally, the next one is a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more challenging, because I know there's different opinions here uh, in this church. Uh, for some, Christmas is a pagan holiday that gets its origin from Constantine and the Roman festival honoring the god Saturn. It's true. That's the origin of Christmas. And for others, Christmas is a time of remembrance of the celebration and the birth of Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate, we are reminded of Matthew 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's obviously on this point, on this verse, Exactly this verse, but God's gift to the world of Jesus Christ that we will study uh, this morning. And while this is uh, an obvious point in which to study, uh, the passage that we're going to look at maybe isn't as traditional or isn't as obvious, and that is in Galatians. So with that, I will ask if you would please turn to Galatians. And it's often the case, I start at one point, and then I decide, you know, it would be better if we read a little bit bigger passage. So you're going to see up here, uh, beginning in Galatians 4, verse 1, you also see that there is a bolded part. Uh, that is the section that we're going to spend time in, verses 4 and 5. But I would like, if you would, please kind of turn your Bibles back a little bit earlier. And we're going to start. In Galatians 3.26, let me give you the context of this. If you were to look at the whole book of Galatians, uh, it is devoted to making the distinction between living under the law as a slave to the law or living in the gospel as a free son. If Christ has set you free, you're not to submit to the law as a slave. And it's kind of interesting in the middle of all this, uh, we're going to see this passage which speaks of the birth of Christ. But let's start together in, a, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But, not, or but now that faith has come 
We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Neither is there Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, a son, then an heir. So interestingly, in the midst of this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, almost the dead center, middle of this letter, uh, we see uh, these two verses, one sentence, uh, five different phrases that tells us of the birth of Jesus Christ, and it is on this uh, in which uh, we will study. So oftentimes, and uh, Tyler, you might have the same experience. It's okay, you know the passage. Now it's how do you lay it out? What are your points that you're going to present? And I oftentimes struggle through this. Originally, I had the perfect timing, the perfect Messiah, the perfect plan. And that was like, okay, that would be cool. That would be good. All perfect, starting with P, and it might help my poor memory. And then, interestingly, um, I said the five commas, because <laughs> there are six phrases, each one unique, each one distinct with a comma, and all comprised of one sentence, but that's pretty stupid. So then I went with the questions of who, or I'm sorry, when, who, and why. So we see this kind of being laid out in this one sentence, uh, what the birth of Jesus Christ is all about. So we will look at these three points. Plenty of slides, um, but I don't think it'll take us too long. But we'll see. So let's uh, work together through the first point is when. So we see in verse one or verse four, uh, it begins uh, with, but when the fullness of time had come. What does that mean? The word for fullness is in the Greek, baroma, uh, which means fullness. A fullness that is absolute, a fullness that reaches its bursting point. And uh, it's funny, I was talking to Pam just this morning. Um, when I thought about this, uh, the fullness of time being a point in time in which something has reached its bursting point, uh, I was reminded of... Um, our second son, or our second child, our son JT, or oldest son JT, uh, whenever he was 
uh, ready to be born, uh, we were traveling from her house uh, going to Swickley Hospital. And um, and water had broken. We're driving down 65, um, driving relatively quick. And I thought, you know, as a supportive husband, I should ask my wife, how far are your contractions? Now, she could have told me hours or she could have told me seconds. I would have had no idea. But I know that's an important thing. How far apart are your contractions? So I would have been fine with any answer she gave me other than the answer which she said, you don't want to know. And at that point, I started freaking out and driving faster on 65. Not the greatest road to drive on. We get to the hospital, and JT is born within 20 minutes of us arriving at the hospital. So to me, when I think of a bursting point of time, that was a bursting point of time. And we see this here in the coming of Christ. Sproul said this, Scripture declares that Jesus was born in the fullness of time, the fullness of time means that history was right for the birth of Christ. Jesus was born at the precise second and in the precise place that God had ordained from the foundation of the world. Everything that Spool said, and he gives a little bit of a visual, or at least I created a visual, is he said the pleroma or the fullness of time is like a glass of water. Not like you would pour and you leave a little bit at the top, but a glass of water that is spilling over. That it is ready. It is over ready. And that is the fullness of time. And we see that mentioned uh, in the historical accounts uh, found in the Gospels. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. It says, And it came to pass in those days, or we could say in the fullness of time, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was the house and the lineage of David, he registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. We could say it was in the fullness of time for her to deliver. So why is it critical? That the Messiah be born in Bethlehem. Why? I'm sorry, what? To fulfill prophecy, right? And we know that. In Micah 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient so Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. Where were they? They were in Nazareth. So, how does God orchestrate it? Do you think it was by accident or coincidence? 
that Mary was with child during the reign of Caesar Augustus? Or do you think it was happenstance that he issued a decree for a census so that they went to Bethlehem? It wasn't, right? And I thought what's interesting is sometimes we think of, okay, what is that journey like? And oftentimes we will put up here a map that none of us understand because it's an old historic map and it shows your mountains and everything else, but we don't know what it means. So what I did was I went to Google Maps and said, okay, how far is it from Bethlehem or from Nazareth to Bethlehem? And we see uh, by car, uh, it's roughly an hour and 46 minutes. I looked this morning due to traffic. It's about two hours and 20 minutes. But we know that wasn't the case here. We know that Jesus, that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, and there in Nazareth, and Mary is ready to give birth, and they have to travel 90 miles. So look at the mothers in this room, <laughs> the recent mothers in this room. So can you fathom that? Can you imagine that? And ultimately it says that it's roughly about a four-day journey by foot at that time. It would be like from walking from here to Morgantown, from here to Akron. But all part of the fullness of time, all part of fulfilling prophecy. But why this specific time in all of history was Jesus Christ born? Why was it that he fulfilled prophecy at this moment? Well, we see ultimately that God was orchestrating everything, as he always does. And I believe before the foundation of the world knew when this birth was going to occur. But practically speaking, everything fell into place. And when I say that, I mean the spreading of the gospel ultimately. We see the Greeks, they provided a common language and a culture so there was consistency, so the word could be spread. If you think about it, if he was born at a time in which there wasn't any common language, how difficult would that have been to spread the news of Jesus Christ's birth, and to spread the news of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, and his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, and evangelizing the world, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Just imagine if it was all the world was every different language and there was no common language. We also see that Rome, uh, up to this point, uh, provided good roads, they provided stability, they provided peace, so whenever the gospel was to be spread, it was easy to spread to different parts of the world. The Gentiles, speaking spiritually, the Gentiles were tired of serving pagan gods, and the Jews were weary and tired trying to fulfill the law and failing all the time to keep it. MacArthur said that Christ could not have arrived on the scene at a more opportune time. It was the perfect time sovereignly determined by God. The fullness of time. We see this concept of God's sovereign time uh, throughout the New Testament and throughout Jesus' ministry. When Jesus began his ministry, uh, the rest of 
John the Baptist, we see in, in Mark chapter 1, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is in hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus understood the, the divine schedule. And oftentimes said, actually, my hour has not yet come. I was looking this morning, John 2, 4, John 7, 6, John 7, 30, John 8, 20, are all different times that Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. But we see uh, that changing. We see in Jesus' betrayal and his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We also see that. At his death, Jesus speaking of his upcoming death in a high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify Romans 5.6 states, at the right time, Christ died for us. And then ultimately, we are waiting for his return. We see in Mark chapter 13. This is Jesus speaking, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven know the Son. Everything was at an appointed time. As the verse says, in the fullness of time. The events were occurring, the time was overflowing. It was the exact point and the exact place in which Jesus was to be born. A good quote by Chris Well says, God guiding the history of the nations to a certain desired and prepared point. And there, at that time, Christ was born. At an elected time known to God, Christ died. And at an elected time, in his sovereign grace, he was raised from the dead. And at an elected time, known to him before the foundations of the earth, he ascended up to heaven, poured out the ascension gift of the Holy Spirit. And at an elected time, known to God, the consummation of the age shall arrive, and Christ shall come again. What a blessing it is. What a comfort it is. To know that everything is based on God's appointed time. It's not by happen chance. It's not on a whim. But it is at God's appointed time. He is sovereign over all things, including time. So first was when. Next is who. So we see in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So we see first that Jesus Christ is fully God. Sent from the Father, meaning that he pre-existed before his birth. The Greek word used for the verb sent means sending out from a previous state. Jesus' life did not begin in Bethlehem. We see a very similar verse 
maybe a sister verse in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ did not begin, did not originate at birth or in Mary's womb, but that he was sent from God. We see some other verses supporting that same thought. First John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among, among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 14 goes on to say, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son be the Savior Jesus himself speaks in John chapter 6 of not only being sent but from where John 6 38 for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him sent and I think if you're thinking about uh, how how do I know for sure that Jesus Christ is fully God? I believe there's a better passage than that found in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It was life. The life was the light of men. Verse 14 later says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who's being spoken of here when it says the word? The word was with God and the word was God. Speaking of whom? Jesus Christ, right? Speaking of Jesus Christ, thank you for participating. We know that Jesus Christ is God. Now, the Mormons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He inherited powers of the Godhood with a small g and divinity from his Father, and he was created by God the Father. So, question is, what do they do with this verse? How do they explain this verse? Well, ultimately, what they do is they change it. There are hundreds of English translations over hundreds of years, and uh, every translation uh, but one has translated it this way, uh, that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But now we have the NIV, and the NASB, and the KJV, and the, uh, the ESV. Well, apparently, I didn't realize this, but there is the JST, which is the Joseph Smith translation. 
And this is what John 1.1 reads in the Joseph Smith translation. The beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. Paul's me saying that it was God who created Jesus Christ. So be careful if you're witnessing to a Mormon, I'm sure, or if a Mormon is trying to witness to you, probably more appropriate uh, as far as what happens. Uh, understand that this is what their defense will be. I think ultimately you need to say, well, let's look at translation after translation after translation after translation over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and how come yours is the only one translated this way? And if you're someone smart like Tyler, who knows the Greek, uh, you can walk them through that. If you need a lesson, Tyler can help you out. Right, Tyler? So we see that Jesus Christ was sent forth uh, by God, and therefore is God. And we know that Jesus Christ refers to himself as God. In fact, in John 10.30, he says uh, that he was before Abraham was, before Abraham was born, I am. He also, uh, that's in John 8, verse 58, in John 10.30, says, I and the Father are one. So we know that Jesus Christ is God, but we also know that Jesus Christ is fully man. And we see this in this passage, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And we see that this was prophesied from the very beginning, from the fall in the garden. Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We know that this was God's plan from the very beginning, from the fall. 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, we see in Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name. Amen. We see this fulfilled in the Gospels as well. Don't we? we read a passage earlier. Here's another passage in Luke chapter 1. One, beginning in verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come to you, come upon you, 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. We flip forward to chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, and while they were there, the time had come for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him. So know that God for Jesus was fully God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we know that Jesus Christ is fully man, born of a virgin, wrapped in claws and laid in a manger. Philip Ryken has a good quote speaking of his human birth. It says, God the Son was born of a woman. Whereas the word sent implies his eternal deity, the word born declares his true humanity. Jesus had an ordinary birth. To say that a human mother gave him birth is to say that God the Son became a human being. This is the doctrine of incarnation. God became man. What better way to emphasize the true humanity of Jesus Christ than to say that he was born of a woman? You sang a little bit ago, Hark the Herald. And one of the stanzas says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to born. Jesus. The question is, why did Jesus need to be fully man? Why did he need to be born of a woman? We see that ultimately because he was born on earth to ultimately die. Bear the wrath that we so deserved. And we see in Hebrews 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear, through fear of death, who are subject to lifelong slavery. Later in Hebrews chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Ultimately, Jesus came to earth to die. He came born of a woman to live a perfect life, a sinless life, and ultimately lay down that life as the final perfect sacrifice for our sins. He was human like us, experiencing hunger and fatigue and sorrow and temptation. But unlike us, he never sinned. And therefore, able to bear the wrath of God that we so deserve. Defeated death, defeated Satan, he rose on the third day and ultimately that's why he came in the fullness of time being fully God and being fully man we also see as we expand upon this 
that not only uh, was Jesus Christ born of a woman, but he was born under the law. He was born Jewish, and therefore bound to keep the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He obeyed with perfection the Ten Commandments. He followed the biblical pattern of worship. He went to Jerusalem for the feast. He celebrated the Passover. Now we see, we go back to what we read earlier. We see this relationship between Jesus Christ and the law. We read in Galatians 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Not, But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God. Faith. The word there used for guardian is uh, many translations. Some will call it tutor. Some will call it schoolmaster. But the word was uh, used for slaves that were in charge of the life and the morals of the boys of the family. They were responsible for pointing out and punishing misbehavior. But Jesus Christ kept the law in perfect righteousness. And we have no hope and chance of doing the same in and of ourselves. Jesus Christ, sent by God, born of a woman, born under the law, has kept the precepts of the law as our representative. And he bore the penalty of the law as our substitute. Jesus speaks of this. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We also see in Romans 10 a wonderful verse, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The belief or faith in Jesus Christ ends our futile attempt trying to be righteous obeying the law and ultimately we are sad we mourn for those who are walking around on earth and do not know Jesus Christ but I think to add to that there are so many that are working so hard to try to be righteous enough to please God and will never be able to and after living uh, months and years of trying to obtain the perfect standard, they will hear, depart from me, you work for a manipulative way. But Jesus Christ, being fully God, being born of a woman, being born of the law, is the perfect life. It's because of that perfect life and him defeating death we are seen as perfect and righteous. So when we look at the who, good way to summarize it, Jesus uniquely qualified to accomplish God's purpose. One, by his divinity, God sent forth his son. Two, by his humanity, he was born of a woman. 
and three, by his righteousness, born We looked at when, we looked at who. So now the question is why. Why did Jesus Christ come? Why did he need to come to earth? Why did he need to be born of a woman? We see that as we move on to verse 5, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Earlier in Galatians, it reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What is written, cursed is everyone who who is hanged on the tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit of faith. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath of him. Stumbled across this verse or this uh, quote this morning from um, Augustine or Augustine. He said, Man was added to him, God not lost to him. He emptied himself by not losing what he was but by taking to him what he was not. Let me read that again. Man was added to him. God was not lost to him. He emptied himself by losing what he was, but by taking to him. Not, I'm sorry. He emptied himself not by losing what he was, but by taking to him. Verses listed there. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, that being God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. In whom, that being of Jesus Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of the Lamb without blemish or spot. Philip Reichen said this, Christ had to be born before he could die. Of course, there could be no Easter without Christmas. But God, the Son, was born of the Virgin in order to die on the cross. Christianity is not a religion of stable and straw. It is a religion of thorns and nails, wood and blood. The incarnation cannot save us without the crucifixion. Christ did not redeem us by his life alone. He redeemed us. see the end of our passage that he didn't come to earth not only just to redeem us but also came to earth so that we may receive adoption as sons 
fact, our passage, for when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption. Later in this passage, we read it, verse 7, You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Hebrews chapter 9, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first book. Ephesians 2, Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. Romans 8, for you have not, 15, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but that you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. What a blessing. And the comfort to know that we've not only been redeemed, but we are His children. And if you think about that, how we pray, and how that comes so natural. We do not pray to some distant God in heaven. We do not pray and say, the old man upstairs, how do we pray? We say, oh, Father, cares for his children. That's the relationship that we have through Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is to know that we're not just redeemed, but we are an heir. We are his children. And also what a blessing it is to know that that adoption does not go away. The inheritance does not go away. First Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you. That's the precious gift that God gave us when he sent his son to be born a virgin to live a perfect life and to lay down that life so that we can have the forgiveness of sin. So that we can be deemed to be in perfect righteousness. So my final slide is a quote from whom? Spurgeon. I wanted to save it to the end. I know you're all waiting to see what the quote's going to be. But I read this, and I read it, and I read it, and I I must admit, especially as I read the end of it, um, it brings me to tears. It says this, 
dispersion, God found a rebellious child. A filthy, frightful, ugly child. He took him to his bosom and said, Evil though you are, you are comely in my eyes through my son Jesus. Worthy though you are, I cover you with his robe. And in your brother's garments, Nobody's believing the child of God is. We are children forever. I think you went back and looked at Jesus when he speaks to Mary as she sees him for the first time. He tells Mary, he says, Go tell my brother. And the blessing it is to know that we are part of the family of God. And as believers and a child of God, may we live our life in gratitude to Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time was sent forth by his Father, born of a woman, born under the law, redeem us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you sent your only begotten Son. Knowing that ultimately he would die a cruel death. Knowing ultimately that he would bear your wrath. The wrath that each one of us also deserves. We thank you, Father, for your perfect plan of salvation. We're thankful, Father, that we were predestined before the foundations of this world. We're thankful, Father, that you removed the scales from our eyes, that you granted to us the ability to see our lostness. And that, Father, you provided our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're thankful to him for his willingness to leave his throne in heaven and to come to earth, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life. And Father, ultimately, to lay down his life. But we know to raise it back up again, to defeat, to defeat death, the death where is thou, thou sting? So, Father, we're thankful again for our salvation. We're thankful for your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There isn't this wonderful name. So, I thought what we'd do is, um, if you're okay.